0: If you have Bibles, why don't you open them to the book of 1 Corinthians. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. And that is page 624 on a Bible that if you get it from us. So it's 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Somebody said today, How, how's it going? I said, it can't get much better than this. Five weeks from yesterday, first Iowa football game. So uh, we're, ready, we're ready. I was watching a game uh, on tape this weekend, and they were, they were wearing throwback uniforms, okay, they were wearing throwback, so look it, I went retro today, so that's what I did, I did my throwback too, so I'm ready for it, five weeks, and, and we're looking for it. devils are supposed to be pretty good too, we'll see, we'll see what happens, um, what do we got, that's it, so you're there, right, First, uh, First Corinthians chapter 15, we are in week 9 of a 13-week series on doctrine. And uh, I'll be honest with you, I'd say, <clears throat> not that I'm not normally, but, but I, I wouldn't even normally even talk about it. I was not that excited about doing this series. Um, it, I, I kind of wanted to get in and do a book, and that's what we do. And uh, the, the way we decide now is, is essentially Justin, Luke, and I are the three primary teachers at the different campuses. And uh, we got together, and the two of them wanted to do this. I was, it, it was neutral on it. And uh, I, a lot of people don't really get it, but I'm pretty coachable and very easy to work with, honestly. And so I said, okay, guys, if you want to do it. And, and I told them last week, I was wrong. This has been a great series. And each week I get a little more excited about it. And, and probably on, on two levels. One, I'm always learning, and I'm starting to see that, that, that big picture I think to be reminded over and over again is that God's writing this story, and, and, and we need to see where we fit into it. We fit into it as a church. We fit into it individually. Probably the other thing, and this is even more important to me, uh, we've had a, just a huge response from people, especially people who are, who are here at Redemption who are not Christians. And, and last Sunday, um, we had five different people uh, come up with our staff so we've started probably however long ago after every service we have staff or members of ministry teams who are in the front to pray with you and we had five different people come up last week and pray to receive christ for the very first time and, and that's a yeah and we i understand that i mean i got the theology of that i know that's god doing that in the holy spirit but, but when, I, when we talk to them, what, what they're seeing is is seeing that sequence of things come together. So, so God is doing something. Uh, we, we've noticed it at Redemption Church. We're seeing so many people that we don't know that, that are here for the first time. Uh, and many who are coming not just from other churches, but, but people who are brand new and questions. And, and maybe that's a little bit about what happens you know right now maybe it's a little bit of economy a little bit of uncertainty and and so God's doing something in people's heart now maybe you're here today and that and that's you uh, maybe you came with questions and we love to say that you came to the right place because we've got answers uh, not because we're so smart but we know the God who created it all and we know him and he gives us answers so we're not afraid of questions uh, we we love we love the fact that that God touches people's hearts and And prompts you. And maybe even creates a little bit of agony and tension and friction in there. That's okay. That's good. That oftentimes is the Holy Spirit doing something in your life. So let me me retrace our steps very quickly. And just in sequence of the studies. So we, we began by looking at the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then we've subsequently seen them at work. Then we looked at Revelation. So we said we can know about a God or a higher power just by looking around. So I, I, I should be able to look at a, at, a, at a sunset, at the universe. So look up or look down to biology and I should see, gosh, there's got to be a creator here. It's, ju- it's just unimaginable that this whole thing's an accident. Now, that doesn't in and of itself get me to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but that tells me there's something bigger than me. Then God reveals in his word who he is, who we are, how we as sinful people can come to know him, a holy God. So we looked at revelation and then creation, that God created all of this. And then we spoke about the the capstone of creation, which is you, that God made us in his image, different than a dog or a cat or a cheetah or a mountain, or a river, or a spider. You're made in the image of God. However, man sinned and shattered that image. So now there's a distortion around us. Uh, Then God said, you know what, but I'm going to save for me a people. And then we said, the last two weeks plus this week, form a little mini-series within the broader series. We look at, God promises now, I'm going to send this, I'm going to send the Savior to my people, and we look at the incarnation, so the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. God became man, sinless, holy God, becomes human for a specific reason, not not to show us how to live, though he does, Not, not to teach us, though we're taught. But he does that to live a perfect life, so he's the perfect sacrifice. That's what we saw last week, the power of the cross. And, and I do. I think when you proclaim that, so often God just uses that to touch people's heart. And, and, I, and I would go back and just say, it's just a rich, it, it, here you go. It's a target-rich environment in which we live. There's so much hurt, so much pain, so much uncertainty, so, so many different things going on that people are searching I remember my hero, my friend Larry Wright, there were years ago, not unlike now, there was a drought in Texas, and uh, the governor had called for a day of prayer, and there was a letter to the editor that said, my God, has it come to this, and so that's kind of where some of us are. We kind of tried everything and looked around, and we keep coming up empty. Empty. We work harder and harder and harder at trying to have fun and pretty soon it just isn't fun anymore. And many of the things in your life that you thought would bring you satisfaction have instead brought you hurt and pain and destruction. And my guess would be that there are some of you over here who've inflicted enormous pain on the people around you, and you're very sorry for it and very broken, and maybe even feel like, is there even hope, or is there a way out, or can I find redemption or forgiveness? And the answer is yes, in Jesus. So that was the cross. On that cross, Jesus said, it is finished. So so the angel told Joseph, here, listen, listen, don't you put Mary away. She's going to have a son. Uh, You'll name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sin. Jesus came not to be served but to serve, to give his life a ransom for many. And on that cross, he says, "It it is finished. Mission accomplished. So here you go. Okay? The resurrection is God's amen to Jesus. It is finished. I, I try just in kind of a, just in life, I try to under-promise and over-perform. Uh, I'm not prone, I don't think, to be swayed by a, a lot of hyperbole. Uh, I, I watch enough television and listen to enough people that that you know it's it's not only good but if you act now we'll double the offer i've seen enough that that's that i don't want to be somebody who says this is what it is and we can't deliver but i will tell you this we are at today as an important topic to the christian faith as as we can ever encounter i want to read you some comments by three men Mark Driscoll, James Boyce, and Ray Stedman about the resurrection. Um, Driscoll writes this, if Jesus is dead, then Christianity is dead. If Jesus is alive, Christianity is alive. Apart from the resurrection of Jesus Christ, there is no savior, no salvation, no forgiveness of sin, no hope of, of resurrected eternal life. Apart from the resurrection, Jesus is reduced to just another good but dead man, and therefore is of no considerable help to us in this life or in life after. Plainly stated, without the resurrection of Jesus, the few billion people today who worship Jesus as God are gullible. Their hope of a resurrection life after this life is the hope of silly fools who trust in a dead man to give them life, subsequently the doctrine of Jesus' resurrection is without question profoundly significant and worthy of the most careful consideration and examination. Mark Driscoll. James Boyce. Love Boyce. Love reading. And many of you probably are not familiar with James Boyce. And, and just a wonderful author. I love the way he writes. He's a brilliant guy. Love to listen to him. Great voice. Um, he just, he just, a, a one. it sounds a little like Dan Aykroyd, really, but I love to listen to Boyce. It, uh, he, he writes this, the resurrection proves that Jesus Christ is who he claimed to be and that he accomplished what he claimed to have uh, come to earth to accomplish. The resurrection is the historical base upon which all other Christian doctrines are built and before which all honest doubt must falter. Ray Steadman, everyone here who is a Christian knows that the fundamental question upon which Christianity ultimately rests is, did Jesus Christ actually, literally, physically rise from the dead? Everything hangs on that question. Now, I've shared with you my admiration really for all of those men and others who would affirm that. But but you know what? There's kind of a trump card to all of it. You got it right in front of you. First Corinthians chapter 15. Look at verse 13 and 14. And it's not Boyce or Stedman or Driscoll. It's the Apostle Paul writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This is how big the issue of the resurrection is. Paul says, if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised... Then our preaching is in vain, and your faith also is in vain. From the New Living Translation, it's a paraphrase. If there's no resurrection of the dead, Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ is not raised, then all our preaching is useless, and your trust in God is useless. Eugene Peterson, paraphrasing in the message, if there's no resurrection, there's no living Christ. And face it, if there's no resurrection of Christ, everything we've told you is smoke and mirrors, and everything you've staked your life on is smoke and mirrors. That's how big this resurrection is. Let me make it, if I can, even bigger. Romans chapter 10, verse 9, Paul writes this, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. What can we deduce from that? Pretty simple. If you don't believe in the literal, physical, actual resurrection of Jesus, salvation is not available to you. That's a huge deal. So we'll hear those conversations all the time. And naturally, they kind of flow with the church calendar, but we'll hear all sorts of conversations around Easter. And you'll hear them in different talk shows. And we'll go, does it really matter? Jesus, did he really write dead? That doesn't really matter because at best it was just an illustration. No, Paul says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you don't believe in the actual, physical, literal resurrection of Christ, what I think the scripture says is there's no salvation for you. That's big stakes, isn't it? Now, I want to talk about the kind of the specifics around the resurrection, just some proofs and some things that, that God put in place so that we can know, and I, and I would say beyond the shadow of a doubt, that Jesus rose from the dead. But, but look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1. We'll spend a little bit of time in this. We'll try to prove this, and then I want to look at the so what of it. So Paul writes this. Now I make known to you, well, look at the first two verses to begin with. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which you also stand, by which also you were saved, if you hold fast, the word which I preached to you, unless you believe in vain. The NIV uh, deals with that first phrase, and it says this, Indeed, I remind you. So Paul's saying, this, and this shouldn't surprise us, and Paul says this is reminding you because Paul's told us, look at it, here's the deal. I preach one thing, right? What is it? Christ and Christ crucified, death and resurrection. It, it, it's really the, the two sides of the same coin. You really can't separate those. Paul says, I'm reminding you this because I come to you again and again and again. And everything I preach, I preach around the the crucifixion and the resurrection of Christ. Paul is not saying that's the only topic I deal with. Paul says, listen, and we know I'm going to talk about marriage and family and work, and I'm going to talk about sexuality. I'm going to talk about all these issues, but always in the context of the death and resurrection of Christ. That's our power. That's what separates us from the rest of the world, from every other faith or every other religion. We serve a a risen Christ, and he he addresses them, and I love this. He says, you're my brethren. Chapter 1, verse 10, uh, chapter 2, verse 1, chapter 3, verse 1, chapter 10, verse 1, in all of those, he calls them brethren. Brothers, but at the at the end of this, look at verse fifty-eight of chapter chapter fifteen. He says, "Therefore, my beloved brethren." we need to understand that paul's saying listen i love you deeply and especially in this letter of first corinthians because in the course of this paul's dealing with sin within that local body he's dealing with all sorts of issues and he's right in their grill he doesn't back off at all but he's saying i do this because i really love you i'm telling you this because i really care so, so, again, we'll see these things often. I'll talk to people and go, you know, I got, I got my brother, I got my sister, I got my best friend, and I, I just don't want to talk to them about the gospel because I'm, a, I'm afraid it'll divide us. I'm afraid it'll become an issue between us. And then my only conclusion is then you don't love them very much. You'd rather spend a few fleeting moments with them here on earth than eternity in heaven. My brethren, I love you. I, I, I want to make known to you, remind you of the things which I preach to you, which you received, and which you also stand. Uh, I, I've watched a lot of TV. Oh, my golly. I've watched a lot of TV this week. We're supposed, Susan and I are supposed to be out of town on vacation, and we just had to cancel, and we can, we've canceled three little vacations. And uh, you don't have to hold a bake sale for me. I, I, I'm just saying, I'm a big vacation guy and we've missed them, but I'm in town. I was in town this week. I wasn't supposed to be. So I had a lot of free time. I was in here some, worked some, read some, watched a lot of TV. And so if you watch TV, most of you are gainfully employed. So you don't have time to watch TV. That's why God gave me to you to do this for you. <laughs> but if you watch Mesothemioma or whatever that is, that's all that. Uh, it's the guy that says, you know, you didn't pay your tax, so here, we'll get you a break. And, and then, and there's a lot of ads for gold. And then there's one that goes like in these rocky times. And so says this ship out and this, this storm is coming and, and where do you invest? Well, here you go. You live in a world, and, and to me it's becoming more and more clear, that absolutely hates your faith. They hate you because of your faith. Yeah, I, I really do think one of the few groups left that you can, a, you can absolutely attack without fear of repercussion is, is are born-again evangelical Christians. In the midst of that, by the way, that's a good because that gets us in the game. That's good because that gives us an opportunity to go after it. I don't mind that one lick. My, my, the personality trait I hate the most is passive-aggressive. I hate passive-aggressive people. I, I hate hate's too strong a word, but you get the drift. I like it. Let's, let's bring it on, man. Let's go. Let's talk about it. In these rocky, stormy times. So here you go. After we finish this series, we're going to spend five weeks talking about the hard sayings of Jesus. Then we have two weeks to talk about whatever we want at the different campuses. Then we're going to study 1 Thessalonians. Okay, 9-11, the 10th anniversary, is on a Sunday this year. So I, I, want, to, I want to speak about 9-11 in the context of hard saying of Jesus. And I went back and found the file that, that I did, the first lesson that I did after 9-11. And I was going, I was going back through that. And I just saw how we were coming back again to stand firm. How it's coming back again and again and again to the word of God. It's kind of what he says in verse 2. I'll pull this together. By which you are saved if you hold fast. Here's what I discovered. We had a corporate 9-11. I mean, 9-11 is just one of those, that's all you got to say. And everybody's on the same page right now. Here's what I've discovered We're having our own personal 9 11s all the time. Some of you had a 9 11 this week. Some of you had somebody that you love really desperately say to you, You know what? I don't love you anymore. Had a kid that you've poured your heart into, time, energy, effort, love, and they say, No thanks. You've had a boss that says, It's tough times. We're going to downsize. It's not a big downsize, just you. We have our own 9-11s all the time. The doctor calls and says, you know, I thought that was okay, but you need to come in and see me. We need to talk. In those 9-11s, how do I find my footing? How am I not just blown to and fro with all of the circumstance around us? Because that's the way life is, right? Very difficult, Many of you right now are at rock bottom. Some of you are kind of in the middle. Some of you, everything's going real well. By the way, if everything's going real well, i got a message for you. This too shall pass, my friend. I bank on it. Right? Well, how do, I find, how do I get my bearings? How do I find my true north? How do I find stability in the midst of this? I stand firm on the Word of God. It's the word of God in which you, look at verse 2, in which you are saved, present tense. This is us now. We're saints. Not because of anything we've done. We're saints because if we are in Christ, believe in Christ, with Christ, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. We're in Christ. As, I love this idea as certain of heaven as the saints that are already there. Now he gives us the gospel. Larry, Larry used to call 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse three and four, five, the gospel in a nutshell. He said, for I delivered to you of first importance. In other words, it's foundational. It's fundamental to our whole understanding, to our belief. I delivered to you of first importance what I also received. Paul writes to the church at Galatia, and he says in Galatians 1.12, For I neither received it, meaning this truth and teaching, from man, or was I taught it, but I received it through the revelation of Jesus Christ. He said, Christ showed me this. The Holy Spirit taught me this. He said, here's the gospel. You see it there, verse 3. Christ died for our sin according to the scriptures. That he was buried... And that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And then we're told in verse 5 he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, to the twelve and then to as as many as five hundred. There's the gospel. Let's touch on it. Be reminded. For, For Christ died for our sins. That Christ died is not Fox News alert stuff. That Christ died is, is, is nothing. Listen, they, I think they say there's something like six, six and a half, seven billion people alive now, roughly the same number of people who've lived and died. So the 14 billion plus or minus people who've lived, they've all died. Enoch always screws this illustration up, but, but him aside, okay, they've all died. Don't stop the presses. Jesus died. We knew, based on all empirical data, that when he's born, he's going to die. Well, what the scripture tells us is that he died for our sin. It's what we studied last week in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. God made Jesus who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him, in Christ. He took our place. He died for our sin. That's our faith. That we've sinned and our sin is an offense to a holy God. And a holy God and his justice and his holiness and his righteousness demands payment for our sin. And it's a payment, a perfect payment, a perfect sacrifice that we can't make. That's why the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Christ died for our sin. And then, I don't know, I don't want to read too much into it, but, but Paul, and they buried him. They buried him because he was dead. But then he rose again. It's the story we see in the Gospels. The tomb is empty. One author writes this. A follower of Buddha writes that uh, of that religious leader, When Buddha died, it was with utter passing in which nothing whatever remains. Muhammad died on June eighth, 632 at the age of 61, and his tomb there is visited yearly by tens of thousands of Muslims. But they come to mourn his death, not to celebrate his resurrection, yet the church of Jesus Christ, not just on Easter, but at every service, celebrates the resurrection. We serve a risen Christ, a God who's alive. Not, not just a teacher, not just a role model. Uh, by, by the end of the week, or by the end of the, the day last Sunday, every lesson gets different. So the first, I always tell the 830 people, you're the rough draft. Okay? Then 1030 is when we tape. This is the one that goes on the website. Okay? Uh, by, by the night, it's a little more developed, it's a little different, there's different emphasis. So, so I was using an illustration last week by the end of the day. I don't think I used it in the morning. That I'm, I'm a really simple guy. Here, here's to me, okay, here's, here's, here's what I want to eat. Meatloaf, cheeseburgers, lasagna. The worst thing I can hear when I come home is, we're going to try something new for dinner. I don't want anything new for dinner. Why would I want something new for dinner? And I mean that. I can eat those three things. I have a of shredded wheat in the morning. And I have a little shredded wheat. I throw some nuts in it. That's fine. I can eat something in the, in, you know, for noon. But, but meatloaf, lasagna, cheeseburger, that's all I need. Well, well, I, and I do that. I do the same thing. I go to the same restaurant. Why would I go to a new restaurant? I like that one. I like that table. And when I go to that restaurant, what do I order? The same thing. I don't want to try anything. When, that, when the services are special, I go, I don't care. Couldn't care less what your special is. Save it for Oprah. I want a cheeseburger or a lasagna, right? Well, the same thing is true in teaching, and much to your chagrin, when I find stuff that I like in teaching, I just go back to them over and over and over again, usually because they're incredible illustrations that that work for me. So In My Hand is a book that many of you are familiar with, but not all of you, and it's called The Jefferson Bible. And so what, what Thomas Jefferson did is what many of you would love to do. He took the Gospels—Matthew, Mark, Luke, John—and he took out the people he, the, the the sections he either didn't like or didn't believe. And and so he's writing to John Adams, and he says, when I'm done with this, there will be found remaining the most sublime, benevolent code of morals which has ever been offered to man. I perform this operation for my own use by cutting verse by verse out of the printed book and arranging the matter which is evidently his. Now, this this is interesting. Here's what he's saying. I look at this, and I take out the stuff that's obviously his would raise a question, what? How do you know that? He writes this. I, I, too, have this wee little book. And he talks about this material. And he said, a, a more beautiful or precious morsel of ethics I have never seen. It is a document in proof that I am a real Christian. That is to say, a disciple of the doctrines of Jesus. Whoa! Whoa! Whoa, 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 whoa. You hear nuance there? Depends what the definition of is is. Look at it. A more beautiful or precious morsel of ethics I've never seen. It's a document in proof that I'm a real Christian. That is, I'm a disciple of the doctrines of Jesus. No, no, no. I'm a disciple of Jesus. It's not the teaching of Jesus that saves me. It's Jesus that saves me. Isn't that what Jesus said to the Jewish leaders? You read the scripture because you think in them you'll have life. No, 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 no. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. So what, what Jefferson said is, I've got this great moral, I've got this great ethic. I've got these pithy little sayings that I can live my life by. And obviously, the teaching of Jesus is certainly something that we ought to incorporate in our life, and we see the value of it. But I'm not saved by the teaching of Jesus. I'm saved by the person of Christ, by his death and resurrection. So it makes absolute sense that when you read the Jefferson Bible, and I'll, and I'll spare you, how many pages are there? 132. I'll spare you this. But, but just, again, I, It's nuanced. It begins with, and it came to pass in those days, that there went uh, out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. I hadn't stopped there, did I? And so this goes on, and now they go to Bethlehem, and Jesus is born, and he's lying in swaddling clothes in a manger. Uh-oh, something's missing. What's missing? No virgin birth. Nothing supernatural. Here's the last sentence of the Jefferson Bible. There laid they, Jesus, and rolled a great stone to the door of the sepulcher and departed. No hope there. This guy, no mistake about it, he may be as smart as any person that's ever lived, but he's dumb as a brick when it comes to this stuff. He's not filled with, inspired with, or convicted by the Holy Spirit. And he makes the mistake that so many make. I want a good teacher. I want a moral leader. That's what Gandhi said. Gandhi said, I reject the idea that Jesus or anyone else could die for my sin but i read the gospels every day and i follow the teaching of jesus and the mahatma was an extraordinary man so to kind of kind of kind of make sure we all get it that's why i always say based on his own testimony he could well be the nicest guy in hell but we know he's in hell based on his own testimony cuz i reject jesus either look at Either Jesus is the way or he isn't. If the Mahatma or anybody else can get there outside of Jesus, why are we here? Let's go home. It's almost time. Let's get ready for some football. If that's what we're going to do on Sunday, why aren't we doing that on Sunday? See that? Because this stuff is really true. Jesus died for our sin. He was buried. He raised again. And, and, and this was all based on what the Scripture says. Now, I've got, uh, depends on how we cut it, let's say 20 more minutes roughly. It'll feel like an eternity to you, though. But, but I, I can make it feel worse. So, here you go. <laughs> oh, well. I know, Ron. I can handle it. Tell me you'll get the tape, Ronnie well here you go what are you going to do with this so, so along, along, along comes this truth that you're a sinner what are you going to do with it i got four options you can deny it no i'm really not you can admit it this is what most people do by the way and resolve to fix it moral realignment i'll do better the third option is to admit it and be filled with despair the, the fourth is to admit it and turn to repentance and faith in jesus Many of you might not know the name John Newton, but you know his most famous work. It's probably the most recorded song in the history of of songs and songwriting, Amazing Grace. Newton was indeed the wretch that he wrote the song about. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. He, He was a slave owner, slave trader amazing stories of how he would force his female slaves to have sex with him, all the stuff, and then God saved him. At age 82, Newton wrote this, My memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things, that I'm a great sinner and that Christ is a great Savior. See, that's your story too. On his tombstone, it reads this, not John Newton, writer of amazing grace, John Newton preacher, John, it doesn't say that. It says, John Newton, clerk, once an infidel, a servant of slaves in Africa, was by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, preserved, restored, pardoned, and in his case, appointed to preach the faith he long labored to destroy. That sounds a lot like the Apostle Paul, doesn't it? Man, I was trying to beat this up. I tried to wipe it out. That can be your story too. God will preserve, restore, pardon you today. It's a matter of coming to Him in repentance and faith. So that's the gospel. When we make all this, what's the gospel? Christ died for our sin according to the scripture, and He was buried, and He rose again, and then He appeared. To Peter, and you look in verse, verse what is it, verse 5, it's to Peter and then the 12 and then the others, it's, and it doesn't tell us how or what that meeting with Peter was like. I have to believe that if there was any who needed to see the risen Christ, it was Peter. It was Peter who had said, I never knew him. I never knew him. It was Peter who, who intimidated by this little, this li- I always have this picture of this little girl. Like I, I keep in my mind a picture of girls I think could beat me up. Like I'll see a girl at the gym and go, hmm I think she could beat me up. It's almost everybody. But, but I see in my mind this little servant girl and this big rugged fisherman. And she says, you were with him too. And he said, no, I wasn't. And one of the gospel writers tells us at that moment, Peter's eyes and Jesus' eyes met. They locked, and Peter went away and wept bitterly. The exact same response that Judas had, but a different outcome, because Judas was filled with despair. Peter, not on his own, but with the Holy Spirit, is now filled with hope. And this fisherman is intimidated by this little servant girl. By the time we get to Acts chapter 4, verse 12, is standing up to all the power of the Jewish leaders, risking his life, and he says, Here's the deal, boys. There's salvation in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven that's been given among men by which we could be saved. So that's the the story of the gospel. That's the resurrection. I want to encourage you to call a friend. I want to encourage you to, when you get home, Google evidence of the resurrection or some variation of that. And there's all sorts of information. Years ago, Josh McDowell wrote a very detailed book called Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Within that was a little section on the resurrection. And out of that came a little book called The Resurrection Factor. And that book was in and out of print very quickly. I, I got online, I have no idea how I did it. I got online and I, and I found something that threw me back into kind of almost a re-release online of that book. It's really a helpful book. Part of what it does is talk about uh, crucifixion, what crucifixion is like, but then the hardcore evidence of the resurrection. So, so we know this, we'll touch on it uh, just briefly. When, when, when Jesus was di- died, he was buried in a tomb, and that tomb was sealed with a, with a, a rock okay, that covered the entrance to that tomb. It weighed somewhere between one and, a one and a half tons. And then across that was put the, 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 the label, the seal of Rome. It represented the authority and the power of Rome, so that if anybody broke that seal, the wrath of Rome would be on you. And then because they were afraid that something might happen, they weren't sure what was going to happen here. They was afraid maybe somebody'd steal the body or what well, they didn't know. They put in front of it a Roman guard. It would be 16 professional killing machines. They weren't afraid of you. They were afraid of the power of Rome. So what they would do is they would sleep and stand guard. There would always be at least four soldiers standing guard to ensure that that tomb was sealed. But on that first Easter morning, the seal is broken. The guards have vanished. They knew exactly what would happen. They were subject to capital punishment at that moment. The tomb is empty. The stone is gone. We get the sense that it's almost as though it's literally picked up and moved over here. The tomb is empty except for the grave clothes that Jesus was buried in. And then it's as though poof, the body has evaporated. <coughs> then this risen Christ. Okay, All of those things. Still the tomb's empty, but then we see a risen Christ appears peter 12 james 500 see on that first easter morning here's the reality the the tomb was empty i always i always get a little bit of kick out of the explanations that go with it two of my favorites maybe i'll give you three here one is that the body was stolen here's the deal the problem with that is you got to ask yourself who would steal the body the jews want evidence that it's there they benefit not from a stolen body the Romans have put in the elaborate safeguards to make sure the body doesn't disappear, and all of Jesus' guys are hid out in an upper room. Stolen body makes no sense. Uh, this is and then the other two are always kind of fun. Uh, th- this is one they went to the wrong tomb. They didn't have GPS. Okay, well here's the deal. Now think think with me. If they went to the wrong tomb, it would be easily corrected, wouldn't it? You made a left, you should have made a right. We don't have any problem here. We'll just go back to the right tomb. My my favorite of the explanations is what's called the the swoon theory. And, And the theory is this, that Jesus didn't die. He fainted from exhaustion and loss of blood. Everybody thought he was dead. The fact he'd been beaten... spear rammed in his side, out comes blood and water separated, a a sign of death. The the fact that a a Roman professional executor signed a death certificate, all that aside, Jesus really didn't die, he just fainted. And they wrapped him in these body clothes and they put him in a tomb, they just laid him there in a kind of a kind of a suspended coma state. They laid him there, then they put this one and a half ton rock in the door, and Jesus came to and shook it all off, threw off the clothes, and blew the rock away. How much faith does that take? (laughs) So here's the reality. The reality is, on that first Easter morning, the tomb was empty. One scholar writes this, "...taking all the evidence together, it's not too much to say that there is no historic incident better or more variously supported than the resurrection of Christ. Nothing but the previous assumption that it must be false could have suggested the idea of deficient proof." In other words, he's saying, you came in with a bias. Another author writes this, I have, I have been used for many years to study the histories of other times and to examine and weigh the evidence of those who have written about them. And I know of no one fact in the history of mankind which is proved by better and more fuller evidence of every sort to the understanding and fair inquirer than the great sign that God has given us that Christ died and rose again from the dead. Another scholar, if all the evidence is weighed carefully and fairly, it is indeed justifiable, according to the canons of historical research, to conclude that the sepulcher of Joseph of Arimathea in which Jesus was buried was actually emptied on the morning of the first Easter, and no shred of evidence has yet been discovered in literary sources... Or archaeology that would disprove this statement. Here you go. Take it to the bank. Jesus is alive. Now, so what? What what we uh, encourage you to do when you listen to someone speak is to ask yourself, what did he say? Is it true? So what? Uh, Here's what I said. Is that Jesus rose from the dead. Physically, literally rose from the dead is it true i believe so based on scripture and all the other things here's the so what drop down to verse 58 in that passage we're looking at in first corinthians 15 paul's kind of building a conclusion here that's why the first word is therefore therefore my beloved brethren be steadfast immovable always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. He said, because all of this is true, because Jesus rose from the dead, you can stand sure, you can stand steadfast, you can be immovable. When those challenges of faith come and those challenges of life come, you can stand steadfast. How? You stand on the rock of God's word, on the person of Jesus Christ, on the reality of that truth. It is not to say that life is easy. Life is very, very difficult. But what Paul tells us is that this has a very, very pleasant ending for us. Verse 51, same chapter. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye. Now, I'm going to talk about that. And so go to the right. To it's page, I think I wrote a page down. It's, if you have a Bible from us, it's page 641. It's 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Paul's writing to the church at Thessalonica, and there's some confusion about what happens when we die in this resurrection. So Paul says this, and I, I don't want you to miss this. Verse 13, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. As I said, this is the book that we will be studying next. Paul, Paul writes this, I don't want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, those who, but, so that you will not grieve as those, the rest, who have no hope. He said there's a whole bunch of people who when death comes, their heart is broken. There's a whole bunch of people. It's, it's called the rest. It's those who aren't in Christ, those who aren't believers in Christ, those who aren't followers of Christ. They have no hope. He said, For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus, those who are in Christ, those who believe in him. God so loved the world that gave his only begotten Son that those who believe in him will not perish but have everlasting life. There's the theme over and over again. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who've fallen asleep. He said there'll be Christians who are dead and Christians who are alive. We won't precede those. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So whether you are somebody who's alive when this happens or dead, it doesn't matter. We're going to be together. And here's the words at the end of verse 17. And we will always be with the Lord here you go, here's the so what, therefore comfort one another with these words. In that passage we're looking at in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 55, Paul writes, O death, where's your victory? Oh death, where's your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power and the law, but thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul tells us that got in Acts, I'm sorry, Luke tells us in, in Acts chapter 2, verse 24, that God raised Jesus up again and put an end to the agony of death. What does that mean, the agony of death? We, uh, years ago, were formed as East Valley Bible Church, and there was a lady in our church. She was a wonderful, wonderful lady. Got cancer, very, very sick, and the, the doctors treated her in every way they knew. He said, there's nothing more we can do for you, but if you'd like, you can go down to the Med medical center at, at, at Tucson. <clears throat> there's some experimental drugs and things we're working on. She did, and, and I would go down. I was in Tucson once a week, and I would go, and I would visit her, and I just watched her, watched her die. Agonizing death. The chemo that they were giving her was so strong that it was actually eating from the inside of the skin out. Her, her face was just fiery red. So, put an end to the agony of death. He certainly doesn't mean the physical agony. This, girl, this lady loved Jesus. He puts an end to the uncertainty of death. Uh, almost every night, as part of my wind down, I'll, I'll YouTube. I think YouTube YouTube is a little bit like TiVo. It's one of those few inventions that really lived up to its billing. And so, I'll watch different things on YouTube. Sometimes funny, sometimes provocative, some speeches. So I was watching the other night uh, a, a, a speech, and, and so I began to look and check other sources. So I thought I'd show you this clip. The guys are great. I, last night at like 10, I, I emailed Josh, and I said, hey, can you get this up for tomorrow? And, and he said, Yes, yeah. a minute and 32 seconds and my my point there's a political aspect i imagine to this and my, my fear i tell you my fear in showing you this my fear in showing you this is you get distracted by the by the political part of it and you miss what the speaker is saying i think it's so powerful and so moving so so, so the audio may not be the best and it's off of a television show from years ago a newscast but i think you'll get the idea so let's let's take a look at this
1: Martin Luther King, Jr. was killed tonight in Memphis, Tennessee, shot in the face as he stood alone on the balcony of his hotel room. He died in a hospital an hour later. Last night he said this. I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead, but it really doesn't matter with me now because I've been to the mountaintop. mountain top.
0: It's awesome, isn't it? If, if you go to Memphis, you just shot the Lorraine Hotel right, right across the street. And, and it's amazing how, how, how close the area is. It's, just, it's a very condensed area. It's kind of like Dealey Plaza in, in Dallas. You're struck by how small it is. It is, is, is clearly, if there was, and Dr. King had been warned about don't go to Memphis. But he went anyway. If he was afraid, I, he, was stand, he was an easy target standing out on that, on that balcony. I, I don't want to get in the politics of it, and, and if you want to all start emailing me about a bunch of political stuff, that's okay because I can press delete faster than anybody in the world, so that's fine with me. I, I want you to see because I believe that you hear him say, listen, I'm not afraid to die, which means i got the, I got the strength to live. And all of a sudden we go, well, I'm not not afraid to die. Here's, Here's what strikes me, is everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. That we say all of this stuff, but when push comes to shove, we'd rather be here in the land of the dead than go to the land of the living. See, that's the power of the resurrection to me. It's to say, and I, and, I, and, I, and I would hold up Dr. King and go, okay, I got it. It's not a perfect life. But to say, listen, I'm here to, do the, I'm here to do God's will in my life, God's will as I understand it, God's will to the best of my ability. And the reality is to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, and that gives me the strength to live. See, that's the so what of all of this. The incarnation, the crucifixion, the crucifixion, The resurrection. Christ died, and and if you believe in Him, trust in Him, if He's your Lord, your Master, your Savior, you're as certain of heaven as the saints that are already there. So when all of this stuff comes—debt, ceilings, firing, pain, physical, emotional, relational—it's I, I, not to say it doesn't hurt. It's to say it has an eternal perspective. It's not to say that life is easy and smooth and, boy, you're never going to have a problem. That's just not true. But I have to weigh it, okay? I have to weigh it against the eternal weight of glory. That's, that's what God's called us to. I, I love studying doctrine. I don't think it's dull and boring. I, I, I think it's fascinating and interesting, It's spellbinding and profound, but it's extraordinarily practical. That's what I like. You you and I as followers of Christ, we're ready to die. Therefore, we, more than anyone else, should be ready to live. Not, Not afraid of any man or any person or any force. It's not to say we don't get scared It's not to say that if you're walking down the street and somebody jumps out at you, you're going to flinch just like that. But when I take my breath and everything settles, I understand that greater is he that's in me than he that's in the world. It's enormously practical and enormously profound and, and, and yet simple. And it's available to every person in this room here in the chapel or in the conference center today. By simply coming to Christ in repentance and faith. In front of each of the two rooms after this service and every service, every Sunday, we have people from our staff who are here, who who are here to answer any questions you have, to pray with you as those five people did last week, who became new creatures in Christ at that moment, who are saved, who are in right relationship with God. Maybe you've been around this all your life and you've never responded. Today might be the day to respond. Or maybe you're brand new. You don't even know why you're here. Something just happened and got you to come here. Maybe you're hurting. Or maybe everything's going great and you go, it's going great and it's still empty. These men and women are here to talk to you to pray with you. And if you're someone who who is a follower of Christ, boy, we know that doesn't mean the end of the difficulties in the world. And one of the most powerful tools we have is to pray. So they're here to pray with you. For us, those of us who say Jesus is Lord, this is a great moment in our service because now we come to the time of communion. Tim's going to come here in the chapel. He's going to lead us in communion. Then the guys, the band, are going to lead us in our time of worship together, then we're going to release you, and you continue to worship all week long as you serve God in everything you do. If you are in the conference center, Tim will be over there in just a second to close your service. Let me pray as as Tim comes. Father, thank you for these extraordinary truths, these amazing truths. God, we love the doctrine, not for the sake of study, not for the sake of head knowledge, but for the sake of life transformation. God, transform our hearts and inform our minds so that our lives are lived in a radical way for your honor and your glory. God, we pray to you in Christ's name, amen.